Welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. To find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Romans 9, verses 1 through 13. Hear God's word. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all. Blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for the gift of your holy word. May it be a lamp to our feet, a light to our paths, and strength to our lives as we love and serve others in the power of the Holy Spirit, and in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. amen. You may be seated. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Many Arminians have been converted to Calvinism because of this verse, and I was one of them. I remember sitting in my bed about 25 years ago, wrestling with the five points of Calvinism, reading this passage over and over, and then closing my Bible, tossing it on the bed, and saying to my wife, well, there's no getting around it. God is sovereign in salvation. And that's when I repented of my Arminianism and gave my heart to John Calvin. <laughs> I kid, but... It, it really was a significant moment in my life. And not because I, and it's because I had confronted, and, and, and not just confronted, but actually submitted to the reality of God's sovereignty in all things, including salvation. However, while God's sovereignty in salvation is, indeed it is a biblical truth, it is not what Paul primarily has in mind with this passage at least not in the way that we normally think of it. In fact, I would say that the typical way this passage is understood has actually negatively affected our reading of the Jacob and Esau story that we find in Genesis. 
Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated, is normally understood as a reference to double predestination. In other words, in God's eternal election, he has chosen some for salvation, Jacob, while others he has chosen for destruction, Esau. But I don't think that is really at the heart of what Paul is teaching here. Rather, he is emphasizing the way salvation is accomplished through Jesus Christ. So let me put it another way. This is what Paul is saying. Jesus is the promised Messiah. And all who are in Christ are also children of the promise. So whether Jew or Gentile, it doesn't matter. If you are united to Christ, you are saved. The Israelites, Paul's people, were chosen by God to be the nation from which Jesus was born. Jesus had to be born to somebody. God chose the Israelites, which means that they had a front row ticket to God's plan for redeeming the world. They witnessed the whole story of redemption firsthand. But they rejected their Messiah, which is why Paul is grieving and would even say, I wish I could take my kinsman's place. Instead, what, what they're doing, Paul's kinsmen, his fellow Jews, believe that by virtue of their Jewishness, their blood relation to Abraham, they are the true children of God. And Paul says, nope, that's not true, and it has never been true. Blood relation does not make one a child of God. And his proof is this. Remember how Abraham was, a promised, was promised a son? Well, Ishmael was his son, his blood, yet he was not the promised seed. That was Isaac. And now someone might say, well, of course it wasn't Ishmael because the promise was that Sarah would give him a son, and Ishmael was Hagar's child. So Paul says, okay, well, what about Jacob and Esau? They were twins, same father, same mother, children of Isaac, grandchildren of Abraham, conceived at the same time, yet Jacob was chosen and Esau was not. And it had nothing to do with how good they were, had nothing to do with how obedient they may be in the future. God chose Jacob in accordance with his own will and purpose, nothing else. This is what Paul means by Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. He means Jacob I chosen, but Esau I did not. But it is not just about choosing. It is about love and hate. And hate is a strong word. But we shouldn't think about this word hate in the way that it's typically understood. As if it just simply means that God loves some people and then saves them, and God hates other people and sends them to hell. It's, it's far more nuanced, nuanced than that. Paul is quoting the first chapter of Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. Now Paul's quotation of Malachi really helps us get to the root of his argument in Romans. You see, the book of Malachi, which is the final book before the birth of Christ, is a prophecy of the coming of Messiah. Malachi begins with the passage I just read. 
that God's love to his people is seen through his preservation of them, through slavery, through the wilderness, through war, through exile, despite their continued grumbling, despite their sin, despite their idolatry, he chose them, he loved them as a nation for a purpose. And then he contrasts that love with hate for the nation of Esau. And that hate then is described in the way that God thwarts their ability to become a great nation on their own. Later in that passage, Edom tries to, tries to become great on their own, and they rise up from the ashes, and God says, nope, it's not going to happen, and he puts them back down. So there's nothing inherently different about Jacob and Esau, and the same can be said about them as nations. Moses even reminds Israel in Deuteronomy 7 that God did not choose them because there was anything special about them, but rather it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God is interested in using Israel as a nation to bring about his plan of salvation for the world. And one of the ways this will happen is by marking Israel out as distinct among the other nations in the way that he shows his favor toward them. And by contrast, then, in the way that he prevents rival nations from flourishing around them. And so again, this love-hate language is not simply directed at Jacob and Esau as individuals. It's the nations they came to represent. And this is important for two reasons. First, remember that Israel is full of wicked people, yet God preserves the nation despite their wickedness. In fact, Malachi goes on to describe just how wicked they are. That's the body of the book of Malachi. The priests have led their people astray. They have robbed the Lord of what rightly belongs to him. They have profaned the covenant, he says. Despite God's faithfulness, they have been faithless, yet they have been preserved. As Malachi says in the final chapter, the great day of the Lord is coming, the birth of the Messiah. The, faithful, the faithlessness of Israel cannot disrupt God's promise. Salvation will come through them. But secondly, it's important to understand that Esau does indeed represent a nation and not an individual because the nations, both Jew and Gentile, will be saved through Christ. You know, this is the goal of the Great Commission, right? Paul makes this point at the end of Romans, in fact, in chapter 15. He says this, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. And here's the thing. When we read Romans 9 as simply a defense for God's election of individuals in salvation, what happens is we tend to equate Esau with those who are not elect, those who are destined for hell. And then when we do that, what happens is we miss the beautiful picture of the gospel that arises out of the Jacob and Esau story. 
The promise to Abraham was that through him the nations would be blessed. In Genesis 17, God says, No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Now, Abram means big daddy, which is an odd name for somebody who had no kids. But God then changes his name to Abraham, which means mega daddy, because God had chosen him to not just be the father of one nation, but many nations. And then one of the first glimpses of this fulfillment is seen in the life of Esau, just two generations later. And we will see this in three stages. First, we will see Esau's rebellion. Then we will see his repentance. And then finally, we will see his redemption. First, we actually see two examples of Esau's rebellion. When he despises his birthright, and then when he marries two Canaanite women. Now I'm going to be reading excerpts from the story, so if you want to follow along, you can sort of flip to the story of Jacob and Esau. Um, in uh, Genesis 25, 26, and it'll be going into 33. So, um, but you can also just listen, I'll read it to you. Um, uh, before we consider these examples, though, we need to remember a couple of important contextual details. First, God had already told Isaac and Rebekah that Jacob was to be the firstborn heir. He said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger." And then the second thing is that we are told that despite this word from God, Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. We could say it this way. Isaac knew that Jacob was indeed the chosen one, but Isaac ignored God's command because he really liked the food that Esau made for him. Meanwhile, Rebekah remembered God's word. And so when we get to the birthright incident, we need to remember this context. The story is found in the final verses of Genesis 25. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. And Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Really? Um, of what use is a birthright to me? And Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. That must have been some amazing stew because Esau was about to die, according to him. But he ate some bread and lentil stew. He ate and drank and rose and went on his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Much like his father, Esau allows his stomach to control his desires. And so Jacob is simply using this opportunity to make things right. This is not about greed on Jacob's part. Jacob understands, at least to some degree, what is at stake here. It's not simply a battle over the financial blessings of the birthright. The firstborn will be the nation that God keeps covenant with. Jacob is the one through which the promise will be fulfilled. As I said, he's making things right here. 
And this gives us some insight into why Rebekah later has Jacob dress up as Esau and deceive his father. It was for the sake of the covenant. Isaac was going to give the blessing to Esau, despite the fact that God had told him to give it to Jacob. And despite the fact that in the passage I just read, Jacob had legally received the birthright. Jacob and Esau made a legal transaction, stew for birthright. It was a done deal, yet Isaac was going to ignore it. Esau is mimicking his father. In the same way that Isaac is despising the covenant by ignoring God's word, Esau is despising his birthright. And it's true. I mean, Esau was technically the firstborn, but he was not the chosen heir. Jacob should not have had to gain the birthright this way. Esau knew what was right and should have joyfully submitted to Jacob. And this is surely what Paul is getting at with reference to, the, to Israel in his day. They were the firstborn, but they were not the rightful heirs, Jesus was. And they should have submitted to him. Instead, they despised their birthright. Esau's second instance of rebellion is found in Genesis 26, verses 34 and 35. When Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Beeri the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basemath, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. This is more than just in-law squabbles. Esau, by marrying into other nations, is marrying into their religious practices. Isaac and Rebekah's bitterness is not simply disappointment. Listen to what Hebrews 12, 15 through 16 says. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. The root of bitterness that is spoken here is the same thing that the bitterness of Isaac and Rebekah. It, it is not just a feeling, like I feel bitter inside. It, it is a thing. It springs up and causes trouble when people are sexually immoral or unholy, like Esau. It causes many to be defiled. Esau, by marrying these Canaanite women, was defiling the faith of his fathers. This happens over and over again in Israel's history. They marry the daughters of other nations, and then they adopt their idolatrous practices. And notice that this is referred to as sexual immorality. Marrying outside the covenant, being unequally yoked, is on par with other sexual sins. So young men... And young ladies of the covenant, Christian young men and ladies, you do not marry outside the faith. Even if they're good looking, it doesn't matter. You go for the ugly Christian before you go for the good looking <laughs> pagan. <laughs> it's, it's not just because it's a bad idea. The Bible says it's wicked. The next verse in Hebrews 12, verse 17, is a tough passage, but I do want to deal with it because it helps us understand Romans 9 a little bit better. It says this, For you know that afterward, so after, after the blessing, he, Esau, desired to inherit the blessing. He was rejected. 
for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Now, this is not saying that Esau wanted to repent of his sins so much that he was in tears and God said, nope, not having it. You have to remember, just like in Romans 9, we are not simply talking about individual salvation here. This is about the covenant promises that are given to Israel. And up to this point, Esau has been in rebellion to God and in rebellion to his parents, selling his birthright for a bowl of stew, marrying Canaanite women, all the while believing that his father was still going to give him the birthright blessing anyways. So when Isaac does call his son to give him that blessing, it's a done deal as far as Esau's concerned. All he's got to do at this point is go make dinner for his dad, the food that has always caused Isaac to make the wrong choice. Only he didn't count on what would happen next, that Rebekah and Jacob would orchestrate things in such a way as to make sure the blessing was given to the right son. Much like the Israelites of Paul's day, this turn of events is shocking and infuriating. Jacob is the promised seed. Esau is not. He, Esau, is the other nation. And the benefits that attend Jacob's blessing are not simply, again, about wealth or getting the majority of his father's stuff. Listen to the blessing from Genesis 27. May God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine, bread and wine. Sacramental. Uh, let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord of, over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. These blessings are how God will preserve Israel until Christ comes and fulfills these promises. These blessings will not be given to Esau and his descendants. Esau is not upset because he really wanted to repent, but God wouldn't let him. Esau is upset because he desperately wants to be the chosen one, and there is nothing he can do to change his father's mind or God's mind. Now, it doesn't come out clearly in, in this ESV translation, but the repentance of Esau that he is seeking, and this word repent, it just simply means to turn or to change. Well, it's not, he's not wanting to repent or change his own crooked heart, but rather he's wanting to change the repentance of, he's wanting to change his father, the repentance of his father. He desperately wants his father to change his mind, to reverse the blessing. And when this doesn't happen, Esau's, Esau's response, again, like the Jews of Paul's day, is murder. Esau, just like Cain, is jealous of his brother and wants to kill him. This, of course, is still true for us today, right? We are going to face persecution simply because we are the bride of Christ. What the world doesn't get, though, is that the church is set apart for their sake. The blessings of God that we receive, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, are given to us so that we can bless them. In many ways, they want what we have, right? They want love, they want hope, they want peace, they want true community, they want everlasting life. They are jealous of this, in fact. But they don't want Christ. They don't want to submit to His will and His ways. And that's 
just not the way it works. You can't have one without the other. And so the response to this is hatred. But sometimes it is indeed repentance. And I think this is true of Esau. Rebekah catches wind of Esau's plan to kill Jacob, and she sends Jacob away for safety. But listen to the next couple of passages. Well, not the next couple, but a couple of passages from the next part of the story. I'll begin with the final verse of chapter 27, and then I'll read into chapter 28. Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of these Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of these women like this, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him and said, You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Paddan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. So we've returned to the issue of Esau's wives again because this is a big deal. He has married outside the covenant and it has caused serious problems. But Rebecca is not simply complaining about you know, his, her son's wives. She is reminding her husband who is perhaps at this point coming to his senses, that the child of promise must not marry outside the covenant. So Isaac sends Jacob to the same place that he found his wife, Rebekah. Remember, Abraham was adamant that Isaac not marry outside the covenant. And that's why he found Rebekah. <laughs> and for good reason, because Rebekah just saved his sorry butt. So it was a good thing. I mean, this is why we listen to our wives, man. Our, <laughs> they have lots of wisdom. Uh, and perhaps it is this point that Isaac realizes the bullet he has just dodged. He has almost given the blessing to the son who had not only despised his birthright, but had also intermarried with the heathen. And I think what we are seeing here is Isaac's repentance. He is finally obeying God's word. And in the same way, that Esau had imitated his father's rebellion earlier, I believe we are also seeing him imitate his father's repentance. Listen to verses 6 through 9 of chapter 28. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Paddan Aram to take a wife from there, and that as he blessed him, he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women, and that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and had gone to Padanaram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife, besides the wives he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Naboth. Notice first that Esau saw he saw that after Jacob had been blessed, he obeyed his father and went to Paddan Aram to take a wife. And then Esau saw that his Canaanite wives did not please his father. And I think this is a very significant event. Not only the fact that Esau sees the obedience of, Jacob's, of Jacob in action, but he also sees the mistake he has made with regard to his heathen wives. And I suppose one might make the argument that Esau is simply still just trying to figure out how to get a part of the blessing. So he tries to make his father happy. 
And this is actually a common interpretation in many of the commentaries. But we have already seen that there is no blessing for Esau. That event is over. It's in the past. There's no indication anywhere that Esau thinks he can still change his father's mind somehow. So no, I think what we're seeing here are two proofs of Esau's repentance. First is the fact that Esau acts after he watches his brother's obedience. And this is a principle found throughout the Bible. Obedience to God's word is influential on those around us. So it shouldn't surprise us that Esau observes his brother's obedience and then follows suit. But just as significant is how he does it. Remember, Paul tells us in Romans that Isaac was the child of promise over Ishmael. But that doesn't mean that Ishmael had rejected God. He was a son of Abraham. And it doesn't mean that God had turned his back on Ishmael. No, in fact, the opposite we find is true. Ishmael may not have been the son of Abraham through which the promised seed had, would come, but God was with him. And so when Hagar and Ishmael are sent away into the wilderness, they cry out to God, and he hears them, and he saves them. God chose Isaac. God chose Jacob. But that doesn't mean that he doesn't care for the rest of the world. When Ishmael cried out, God heard him and blessed him. And now Esau, in his distress, is turning to the God of his fathers. And he's doing it the right way. He's no longer grasping for the blessing that is not his. He is actually submitting to the will of, of the Lord. And as we will see, Esau will actually receive blessings through his submission to God's will. Esau will be redeemed. The next time we see Esau is about six chapters later. Jacob has left Laban's house with his wives and children, and a confrontation with Esau is on the horizon. Jacob is afraid. And it doesn't help that Esau is approaching with 400 men. Remember, the last time Jacob had seen Esau, Esau wanted to kill him. But Jacob is in for a pleasant surprise. Esau is a new man. And I believe we see his redemption in three phases of their reunion. So first we read, I won't read the whole thing, I'll just read excerpts. But first we see, we read that Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. Esau embraces Jacob. It's not even the other way around, it's specific. Esau embraces Jacob. And this is not simply long lost brothers reunited. Esau's response to Jacob is almost identical to the reunion of Joseph and his brothers that we read later in Genesis. It's also identical to the reunion of the prodigal son with his father in Luke 15. This is reconciliation. Second, after Esau has been introduced to Jacob's family, he says, what do you mean by all this company that I've met? And Jacob answered, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. He's speaking of Esau. But Esau said, I have enough, brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Esau's heart has been changed. He no longer desires what belongs to his brother. As he once did with Jacob's blessing, Esau is content with what God has given him. And this is the fruit of true repentance. False repentance asks for forgiveness in order to get something. It's manipulative. 
But true repentance happens when our heart is conformed to what God wants. And then finally, Jacob, the third thing is Jacob responds to Esau with blessing. When Esau says, I have enough, my brother, keep what you have for yourself, Jacob's response is not cool. <laughs> Jacob insists on blessing him. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. Thus he urged him and he took it. This is the gospel. It's reconciliation, a changed heart, and then blessedness. And this, of course, is what we do in here. This is the flow of worship. When we respond to the call for worship on the Lord's day, we begin with confession. We repent of our sins. We are forgiven. We are reconciled to God through His Son. We then hear the word. Sharper than any two-edged sword, it pierces to the division of our soul and our spirit, of our joints and marrow, and it discerns the thoughts and intentions of our heart. We are changed. And then we are blessed. Reconciled, then renewed, we come to God's table, and we are refreshed. But it doesn't end there. Like Israel, the covenant blessings of God are not simply for us. They are designed to strengthen and empower us to serve our neighbors. Jacob received the blessing, and with it, he blessed his brother Esau. And likewise, after we have been reconciled, renewed, and then refreshed, we are then sent out to bless our community and share the gifts that God has graciously given to us. And this helps us to see ourselves and the world as we ought to, not as the precious chosen amongst a world full of unchosen, but as the recipients of grace who have been given the privilege of extending the kingdom of God to the ends of the earth through our worship of the King of Kings and then our love of others, even those who hate us. Let's pray. Oh Lord, you have blessed us beyond measure. Help us to be thankful for your gifts. And may our hearts overflow with gratitude so that the world may see that you are a good father who loves his children. And most of all, we thank you for that most precious gift of your son, who is the reason why we can stand so boldly before you and ask for your blessings upon us. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. To find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com.